got a pet peeve I want to share with you. Can I? People who don't know how to be good passengers on road trips. You ever been on a long road trip, like in the car, and you're riding with somebody, and they're like the worst passenger ever? You ever been that way? You ever, you ever ridden with somebody that way? Okay, so here's what I want to do. People who are typically drivers on road trips, I want to do you a favor today. And by do you a favor, I mean I'm going to chastise the passengers just because I need you to know how to be a great passenger on a road trip. First thing you need to do is mind the food. Mind the food. Here's the deal. You're on a road trip, you've been driving a long time, you zip over the side of the road, you pull through a drive-thru, right? Everybody orders. Then the first thing you do is you exit the drive-thru and what do you do? Get back on the road. Why? Because it's a road trip. It's not a Wendy's trip. You don't stay. You go back on the road. And have you ever been to the person in the, in, the, in the passenger seat and the first thing they do is just start grubbing? Just start pounding food down and you're like, hey, if it's okay with you, since I'm going 120 clicks an hour and trying to prevent us from dying, could you hand me my burger, right? If it's not too much to ask. So here's the thing, passengers, what you do is you take that food and you unwrap their burger nicely. Don't take all the wrapping off, but just enough that they've got something to hold on to, and you give the driver the food. That's rule number one, okay? Rule number two, passengers, here it is. Watch for signs. You ever been in a road trip with the passenger? You're the driver, and the passenger's not paying attention, and there's signs on the road, and they have no idea where you're going, no idea where they're going. They're listening to a podcast or watching a movie or whatever it is, and you miss the turn. That is not your fault. That's their fault. <laughs> I, was once, I was once in a car in, in South Florida. I was driving with Kaya's uh, birth dad, just a fantastic human being. And I really hope he listens to this message after the fact because he will laugh hysterically because he will remember this moment. We're in South Florida, and I don't go to South Florida, I mean, very, very rarely. And it's his hood. Like, he grew up there, right? He knows the neighborhood, all that stuff. So we're driving around South Florida, and I said to him, hey, you gotta tell me when I'm supposed to turn here. And he goes, Oh, bro, you were supposed to turn six miles ago. We were just having fun, so I don't want to tell you. I'm like, six miles ago? Like, you have to watch for signs. That's your job. He's like, you missed the turn. He'll think that's funny. All right, number three, here's the deal. If you're a passenger, mind the food, watch for signs. Stay awake, please. Stay awake. Some of, somebody just said amen. Seriously, you have, ever, have you ever been on a long road trip with somebody and they just conk out? It's like, I'm driving. You know, you look over, and they're like putting their pajama pants on. They're putting their night guard in, you know. CPAP machines. Like, what did you get a CPAP machine from? You know, you hit that recline button, boy, I will light you on fire. You stay awake in this vehicle. Stay awake. Here's the thing. Everybody can be a great passenger. You can be a great passenger if you follow those three simple rules. But not everyone can be a great driver. Not everyone can be a great driver. This was illustrated to me this week when I was watching, um, do you watch, what's it called, Carpool Karaoke with James Corden? Do you guys watch this? Okay, some of you know what I'm talking about. This is James Corden. Uh, he's a late night talk show host and he does kind of this bit called Carpool Karaoke. And what he does is he drives around and he goes and picks up people. A lot of them are famous, all of them are famous, but they're famous or they're, they're, most of them are musicians and singers. And what they do is they drive around in the car and they play this person's music and they sing together. So it's Justin Bieber and it's, who else, who else have I seen on? Britney Spears. He did one with Michelle Obama, which was wild. Okay, so this one, uh, the first, thing you see in James Corden's Carpool Karaoke, the one I was watching this week, is James Corden sitting in the car, and, and if you can see here, he's clearly in the passenger seat, right? He's in the passenger seat. And I have to tell you this, I have to do the British accent, because this story is not funny without the British accent. So what you see is the camera zoomed in on James Corden, and he goes like this, you sure you're all right to drive, mate? You sure you're all right to drive? And then you hear the voice go, yeah, I'm cool, I'm fine, I promise. He's like, I don't know, mate. I don't know if I can trust you to be a great driver. I, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yes, I promise I'm okay to drive, I'm sure. And then the camera pans out, and what you see next to James Corden is Stevie Wonder. <clears throat> and I got, I got no issue. Stevie Wonder, as a musician, how good is Stevie Wonder? Do you know Sir Duke? Ba -da -da -da. 
dun, 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 or superstition. You hear that drum beat come in? And I just turn it up in the car, right? Very superstitious. Like, I just called to say what? I love you. Some of you guys, you don't even know. You don't even know Stevie Wonder. You know that song because in a dentist office or in an elevator, somebody's been ingrained into your consciousness, right? Stevie Wonder is an outstanding musician, likely not going to be a great driver. So, so what happens in this scene is Stevie Wonder goes, oh man, you know what? I just realized I forgot my license. Maybe you should drive, right? So they switch places. You should watch this. It's great. It's fantastic. It's carpool karaoke. It's amazing. Here's the deal. Here's what I want us to learn today from John chapter 18 and 19 is that emotions can be great passengers, but they're awful drivers. They're they can be great passengers. They can point you in the right direction. They can alert you to things. They can help you watch for signs in your life. But the minute you turn over the keys of your life and allow your emotions to take control of the steering wheel, they will drive you further than you're willing to go, keep you longer there, far longer than you wanted to stay, and cost you a lot more than you wanted to pay. And it's funny, just as someone who is not a seeing person, in Stevie Wonder's case, is probably not going to be a great driver, we actually talk about emotions in this way, don't we? We say that person is blinded by what? Rage? We say things like love is blind. And not like the agape, biblical kind of unconditional love. Like love like, you know, I have those butterflies, affections kind of love, right? It's like, oh man, I can't tell you how many women I've talked to, like even counseled in my office. Like, you know, I just met somebody and I'm so in love with him and oh my gosh, he's, he's the best and everything's gonna go really great. It's gonna turn out awesome. I'm like, you know, he's been in and out of the penitentiary a couple times, right? Like this is not a good thing and love is blind. I, I don't even say love is blind. I just say love makes you stupid a lot of times, right? It's just stupid choices and people turn over the keys of their life to this emotion or this longing, or this desire, or something, and they allow that thing to become their driver, things don't go well. And that's exactly what we're gonna see in the betrayal, trial, crucifixion, and burial of Jesus as we ask this question now, not what happened, but why did it happen? Pray with me. God, would you open up our minds and hearts today? Would you speak into us so that we uh, submit everything to you and bring everything into, under your kind of objective standard and, and the kingdom and authority of Jesus. Be in this place today, oh God, by your spirit. In the name of Christ, the people of God together said, amen. Uh, did, did, you, did your phone ring on Wednesday at 3 p.m.? For those of you who are with us, and somebody asked me after the fact when I taught this message and said, we basically concluded with history in the Bible that Jesus was crucified and breathed his last April 3rd, 3 p.m., 33 A.D. Somebody said to me afterwards, like, you know what? I've never heard that before. And this person is 70 and been in church a long time, which, which is one of two things. It's either a really nice compliment or it's, or it's a warning, right? Like, oh no. It's like anytime somebody says, I've never heard that passage preached that way before. Like the first thing I think is, oh my gosh, I'm a heretic. Okay, so here's the thing. Here's the thing. There is some discussion and some disagreement in terms of the date that Jesus was crucified, crucified but the majority of conservative Christian scholars agree it was April 3rd, 33 AD for all the reasons that we uh, talked about this last week. So I hope that your phone uh, rang when we put that notification in this last week on Wednesday at 3 p.m. and that you remembered that that day, 1,986 years ago, to the very minute, death died in the death of Christ. And what we did last week in John chapter 18 is we established what happened. So now we know what happened. We know the facts. We know that Jesus was betrayed into the hands of sinners, that he was uh, kind of underwent a mock religious trial where he went back and forth between Annas and Caiaphas. We know he underwent a, a mock government trial where he went back and forth between Pilate and Herod. He was crowned with thorns, made to carry his own cross, crucified outside the city walls of Jerusalem at a place called Golgotha and breathed his last, April 3rd, 33 AD, buried in the tomb of a rich man. And death had won. We know what happened. So here's our next question. Why did it happen? Why did it happen? And, and, and I, and I want to ask this question from, 
kind of two perspectives. One from a theological perspective. What was God up to in all this? Why did God allow this? Why did God ordain this? Why did God provide opportunity for this? Why didn't God intervene? Why, from God's perspective, what's driving God here? The other question I want to ask is what's driving these individuals? To whom or to what did they turn over the keys of their life, their decision-making, and allow someone or something else to take the steering wheel of their life and cause them to make really, really horrible choices? Namely, I want to ask about Judas and Peter and the Pharisees. Later on today, as you read John chapter 18 and 19, you can ask about Pilate or the Roman guards. What's driving those folks to make those decisions? Because here's my guess. I don't think that Judas, from the day that he was born, thought, you know what I want to do is betray the Son of God into the hands of sinners. That's what I'd really like my life to amount to. My hunch is that with Peter, from the day he started following Christ, he didn't have in the back of his mind, one day I'm going to deny that I've ever met him. That's what I want to do. Something else happened. Those decisions start way back over here where a little seed is planted and it's watered and it grows and it overtakes your life such that it becomes the driver and causes these folks to make decisions that they would not have otherwise made. So like I said, we know what happened. We know the facts. Let's ask why did it happen. And so here's the first question. What's driving Judas? What's driving Judas? Because here's what we know about Judas is that Jesus celebrated Passover during that Passover meal. Judas left and went to do what he needed to do or what he uh, endeavored to do in terms of betraying Jesus into the hands of sinners. Jesus and the other 11 disciples journeyed north and northeast to the northeastern side of Jerusalem to the Garden of Gethsemane. And Judas led priests and the temple guards along with Roman soldiers to betray Jesus so, so in, in that private place. And once again, I can't imagine that Judas, just kind of in the middle of that meal, thought, huh, you know it would be a good idea? I'll betray him. Like, this happened a long time ago. This started a long time ago. And John gives us a clue as to when it started. Look at John chapter 12. Uh, he said this. What he means is Judas said, hey, woman who's just broken this expensive jar of perfume over Jesus' feet, you shouldn't have done that. We could have sold that and given it to the poor. That was too expensive, too much worship, too extravagant. You shouldn't have done that. He said that not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. See, Judas was kind of the treasurer for the disciples, and people would give them things and donate things, and he would kind of hold on to that money and make sure that all their needs were met, and he started pulling from it over those three years, possibly four, that he followed Jesus. So fast forward to that day that he makes the decision to uh, act and actually betray Jesus. Look what Matthew tells us. It tells us one of the 12, his name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? What, what are we going to trade for? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. So Judas betrayed one of his best friends, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, into the hands of sinners for 30 pieces of silver. Anybody ever heard that before, 30 pieces of silver? You've kind of heard that before? Okay. In today's dollars, if you were to kind of convert it, not U.S. dollars, uh, Canadian dollars, okay? If you were to convert it, that's about 320 bucks. 30 pieces of silver, about 320 bucks. So here's my guess. You may really need money in your life right now. You may be in a very difficult financial position. But if I came to you and I said to you, uh, here's the deal, your best friend in the whole world that's always taken care of you, that's been by your side through, through thick and thin, something about that friend is kind of unique. Namely, in Judas's case, he's the son of God and you know it. Your best friend that's taken care of every need for the last three or four years. Here's what I need you to do. I need you to lead me to that person, him or her, where they're in a really private situation so that I can murder them and no one will know. I need you to do that for me. What's it going to cost me? Here's my hunch, friends. 
it would probably cost me more than $320. Don't you think? If you were going to betray your best friend, it would probably cost me a little more than $320. Why is it that Judas has been taking money from the money bag the whole time? Why is it that he would betray his friend for 30 pieces of silver? What's greed? And friends, greed is a horrible driver. Greed is an awful driver, acquiring more and more and more, amassing wealth, being the one with the most toys when you die is an awful driver of your life. Now, there are moments when we have financial needs, don't we? We have financial needs in order to buy food and shelter and clothing and those types of things. We have financial needs. And, and so, so the, the desire for something, the desire to acquire or purchase something can be a really great passenger, can't it? I need to work and make money in order to buy a home for my family. Really great way to help you, you know, navigate your life and get up and go to work on time. But the minute you turn over the keys of your life and allow that thing to be driving your life, that becomes greed, and greed is an awful driver. And we know this intuitively, don't we? We know this, and not only that, study after study after study, psychological, sociological, has shown us that greed is an awful driver. And watch this. I want you to pay really close attention because here's how greed works. There's a man named Johan Hari that wrote a book. I was reading it last night. It's a fantastic book called Lost Connections. It's about the causes of clinical depression and anxiety. One of the things that Johan Hari argues is that materialism, greed, acquiring and amassing things is one of the causes of depression and anxiety. And he cites this study where, where, where these uh, sociologists, psychologists took two groups of children and each of those groups of children were presented with the option to play with one, or, one of two boys. One of the boys had a toy. The other one had no toys. And they said to these groups of children, which one would you rather play with? The boy with the toy or the boy without the toy? But here's the catch. Here's, here's the thing. What they told the children was the boy with the toy, he's a rat. He's a punk kid. He's angry. He pushes people around. He gets physical. You won't like him. He's not a good friend. But the one without the toy, great kid. Tender, connected, awesome. You'll love him. Okay? The vast majority of group A chose to play with the boy with the toy, even though he was a little punk. The vast majority of group B, he wasn't really a punk. They just told him that for the sake of the thing. All right. The vast majority of group B chose to play with boy number two. They're okay not having a toy because he was going to connect with me and be a good friend. You know what the difference between group A and group B was? They showed group A one commercial for the toy. One. And the vast majority of kids in group A were willing to sacrifice personal connection and friendship in order to acquire that toy because they saw one commercial. You know that by age, uh, by 18 months old, that most children can identify over 100 brands? Do you know that? Studies have shown that. And most of those children don't know their own last name. But they know what the golden arches look like. They know what that swoosh looks like, buddy. Because we are in a culture that tells us that if I get and acquire more, it's going to make me happy. And rather than making me happy, what it does is it chokes out those things that actually do make me happy. In, in the case of the children, they chose lack of personal connection so they could get the toy. And they sacrificed personal connection so that they could get that toy. Let's look at it this way. I love Diet Coke. Anybody else in the room love Diet Soda? Oh, it's good and good for you. So, so good. And it's full of preservatives, right? It's like full. It's just, it's totally fake. The reason I love it is not because it tastes great, but because I'm slowly embalming myself in order to save Amy a buck when I kick off here in a few years, all right? So I will already be preserved. They can just put me in the coffin, right? Because I drink so much diet soda. Love diet soda. Well, here's the thing. Drinking diet soda takes away your thirst. It, fuel, it fools you into believing you're not thirsty, 
All the while, it's actually harming your body and putting toxins into your body and keeping you from drinking the water that you really need. Listen, greed and materialism are Diet Coke for your soul. You think it's solving your problem, but all the while, you're forcing toxins into your soul. And choking out those things that you really need. See, this is what happened with Judas. And the thing got so big and so much for him. And he turned over the keys of his life, the steering wheel of his life to this thing. And it caused him to do something unthinkable because of his greed. Question two, what's driving Peter? What's driving Peter? Uh, If you don't know this, that uh, over the course of the wee hours of the morning, when Jesus was on trial, both before the religious leaders and then the government leaders, uh, the man who probably was one of, or not probably, was certainly one of Jesus' three closest friends, the very first man who said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. That's Peter. That's Peter. Walking with Jesus, loving Jesus, being near to Jesus. He denied that he even knew the man three times. And one of those situations is really unique. Jesus is on trial with the religious leaders, and watch what happens. Uh, The servant girl at the door said to Peter, this is outside the high priest's house, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? Peter says, I'm not. Don't even know the guy. So I want you to pay close attention. The servant girl, original language, context, what she's doing here as a guard outside Annas and Caiaphas' house, again, considering the original language, this girl is probably about 10. And Peter's response to her is not just, I am not. Not very Canadian. Okay? The response is aggressive. He, he borderline swears at her, almost gets verbally abusive with her. says, I swear to her, or swear to you, I don't know that guy. Like, what causes something? This girl can't do squat to him. Like, she's not going to physically overpower him. She can't turn him into anybody. Peter didn't do anything wrong. What is it that drives somebody to make such an awful decision like that? Anybody have a guess? He's afraid, isn't he? Fear is an awful driver. Awful driver. Fear can be a great passenger. Fear can help you make good decisions. I'm afraid to jump out of this plane without a parachute on. Good thing. Good thing. I remember um, a couple years ago, Amy and I were traveling internationally for the very first time since having children. And Amy's like, you know what? I have this anxiety. I'm starting to get afraid. I think we probably need to do our will because we'll both be on a plane. And if the plane goes down, you know, all this stuff. And and she was just getting afraid because, you know, we were going to be away from Kaya at, at the time, just one child. And I'm a great husband, is really, is really, if you're writing down notes, just Luke is a great husband. Please jot that down. And so because I'm a great husband, I, I, I heard my wife talk about her fear, and I said, well, that's stupid. <laughs> Again, because I'm a great husband. And, and my wife uh, called some friends of ours. And you know what was interesting? This, this buddy of mine who's older than me and, and, much, and much more mature and tender. You, you know what he said to Amy? He said, you know, that fear is really good. I was like, well, fear is not good. That's not biblical. And he goes, if you are afraid that your child might get hit by a car, so you tell them, don't run out into the street. Is that a good thing? Yes, because fear is your passenger, not your driver. If you are afraid to jump out of a plane without a parachute, and you say, perhaps I could borrow a parachute, that's a good thing, because fear is your passenger, not your driver. But have you ever been around a parent where fear is their driver? (laughs) You people are so sweet. Oh, you're so kind because every one of you has been around that parent and nobody said, that's you to your spouse, right? Nobody did that. Everybody just went like this. Hmm. Hmm. Oh, man. Love Canada, boy. Ooh. You've been around those parents. Every t- oh, please don't do that. Please don't eat that peanut. Please don't do that. What are you doing? Please don't. And there's just fear all the time. And fear, honestly, overwhelming fear. Studies have shown. This is not even Bible stuff. This is psycholo- psychological stuff. Shown that it affects your uh, digestive system. 
Overwhelming fear can compromise your long and short-term memory. See, when you turn over the keys of your life to fear, it causes you to do very dumb things, which is what happened to Peter. Fear was no longer the passenger. Fear was the driver. And then John comes along after all the events of the gospel, before he's even written them down. He starts writing these letters to churches, and listen to what he says. He says that there is no fear in love. Because perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We're going to talk about this in a little more detail here in a minute. But just to note, fear was no longer Peter's passenger. Fear was his driver. And it drove him further than he ever wanted to go. Caused him to do things he never thought he could. Cost him more than he ever wanted to pay. Because he's turned his life over to fear. John offers us a part of the solution here. We'll come back to it here in a minute, but let's ask another question. What's driving the Pharisees? What's driving the Pharisees? If you don't know about the Pharisees, they were religious leaders and religious elites of the day, and they built their entire life and their uh, finances and their relationships and their decision-making on being righteous, meeting God's kind of moral code. So much so that they, just, they, they didn't just have the Old Testament moral code, but they had another 700 laws on top of that that they followed. Their entire life was based on, <coughs> excuse me, their own righteousness, their own ability to tick all the boxes. So does somebody wake up one day and go, you know what? There's, I don't know, 1,200 laws or so in the Old Testament. That's not quite enough. I'm going to add another 700. Like nobody does that day one. Nobody does that day one. Something happens inside, and when we don't bring it under the authority of Christ, it grows and becomes something bigger than we ever thought it could be, and it becomes our driver, and it caused the Pharisees to make an awful, awful choice. Well, what's driving them? Well, it's the same thing that was driving Cain in the book of Genesis. Look up here on the screen. John writes this. He says, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? About to tell us exactly the reason why. Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. See, here's what happened to the Pharisees. Now, if you don't know the story of Cain and Abel, let me just summarize it real quick. We'll talk about the Pharisees in a minute. Uh, Abel's sacrifice to God was accepted. Cain's was not. Abel's was acceptable to God. Cain's was not. We're not going to get into the details of why. We'll do that some other time. And Cain grew jealous, not Cainan, my child's name. Don't name your kid Cain. Not a good idea. Or Judas, either one. Don't do that, okay? And Cain grew jealous of his brother because his brother's uh, sacrifice was acceptable to God. And so he killed his brother. He murdered his brother. That's why he murdered him. And he said, because his deeds were righteous, mine were evil, and I'm jealous and I'm going to kill him. See, here's what happened to the Pharisees. They had built their entire life on their own righteousness being acceptable to God. I've done everything God wanted me to do. I've avoided everything God wanted me to avoid. And not just that, but there's another 700 things that I've done and avoided that I've made up for myself. I am acceptable to God. I am righteous. I am perfect. I, 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 I. And then Jesus shows up. And they watch him walk around and interact with people. And he says things like, check this out. He says things like, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees. I tell you the truth, you will never enter the kingdom of God. To which the Pharisees respond, what? I tell you the truth, it is, it is written, you shall not murder your brother, but, but, but let me tell you something. If you hate him in your heart, you've already committed murder. I tell you the truth, you shouldn't commit adultery. Yeah, that's true. But if you lust after someone in your heart that's not your spouse, you've already committed adultery. To which the Pharisees respond, what? And you can see even throughout the course of the book of John, their jealousy beginning to build because Jesus was actually righteous. And they knew they were not and what happens, what is that feeling inside of you when you know you did something wrong? What's that feeling? It's called guilt, right? It's called guilt. 
When you know you did something wrong, when you know you're not living up, when you know you missed something. And so what happens is this guilt that the Pharisees had never felt before. Why? They had no reason to, right? I've never done anything wrong. No guilt. Easy peasy. Jesus shows up, and the weight of his righteousness begins to sit so heavy on the Pharisees that they're going, oh, no. And instead of dealing with their guilt before God, what they did was they turned the keys of their life over to guilt. And guilt is an awful driver. Guilt can be a great passenger when we feel like we've done something wrong and it can alert us to things and direct us and help us see signs in our life. Guilt can be a great passenger, but the minute we allow guilt to be the driver, we're in trouble. This is what Paul means in 2 Corinthians 7 when he says, godly grief produces repentance. Guilt produces change that leads to salvation without regret. Guilt's a great passenger. But worldly grief, when you turn your life over to that, is an awful, awful driver because it produces death. Guilt is an awful driver. Good guilt, like a passenger that's helping you look for signs. Hey, avoid that. Remember how we felt last time? Hey, go that way. Remember how we felt last time we didn't go that way? See, that's good guilt. But when we turn the keys of our life over to guilt and we allow guilt to manage all of our decisions, this is what the Pharisees did. And it led them to do something awful. 1,986 years ago. And so here's what I want to talk about just a little bit. I want to talk about the ways in which those little desires and those little emotions, those little seeds begin to grow when we don't bring them under the authority of Christ and eventually overwhelm us and cause us to do something wild. James talks about it in his letter to the churches. He says, each person is tempted says, look, this is how temptation works. You want to know how it works? Very easy. Three-step process. Very simple. Watch what happens. First, you're lured and enticed by your own desire. I want. I need. I long for. Watch this. I want to be very, very clear. Then, desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. Are desire and sin the same thing? Everybody say no. No. No, I love to use this when I talk about sexuality, homosexuality, heterosexuality, whatever. Just because you have a desire for something doesn't mean you're sin sinning. James is very, very clear with that. It's what you do with it. That's the critical piece. And he says that desire, if you bring it under the authority of Christ and allow him to be the driver, ship shape. But when you don't bring it under the authority of Christ, this is what C.S. Lewis says, it's sin is meeting a legitimate need in an illegitimate way. That desire, very legitimate, that desire for financial things like, you know, that turns into greed, that desire to live guilt-free that turns into this kind of wacky religious stuff that the Pharisees got into, those initial desires were actually good things. They just didn't deal with them appropriately. So those desires became what? Sin. Sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. It brings forth death. Physical death, spiritual death. In this case, the death of Jesus himself. So watch. Here's what James says. Very, very clear. First, desire. Desire. That desire, if you don't bring it under the authority of Christ, becomes sin. And that sin, eventually, when it is full grown, becomes death. And I love his analogy because he talks about conception and being fully grown and those kinds of things. So, so let's look at his analogy here. He says, desire is like a baby. It's like a little baby. Like, I don't know how much Canaan weighs now, but, but, but I can physically manhandle him. He's eight months old. That shouldn't be impressive, right? Like same things as some of those little desires in your heart. They are not going to overtake you. They're not going to manhandle you. But you know what? Here's the thing. When you don't bring them under the authority of Christ, those babies grow, don't they? Those desires grow. They get bigger. They start eating all your food. And one day, they become a teenager. Now, for those of you with teenagers, you're thinking, this makes sense here. <laughs> That's exactly what that is, okay? 
And eventually, if you don't bring them under the objective standard of God, what happens is that teenager becomes fully grown. And if you treat a fully grown person like a baby, it's going to kill you. Let's just use an example here. Does this name sound familiar to anybody? Andre Rusimov? Does anybody know who that is? How about this? Andre the Giant? You know who that person is? Yeah, for those of you who don't know, he was a professional wrestler, and uh, Andre the Giant had a genetic disorder that caused him to be a very, very big man. And when I say very, very big, I mean seven foot five, 520 pounds. Now, for some of us, like, you know, you hear that seven foot five, 520 pounds, like, I don't know what that means, really. But let's just get an idea of how big a man Andre the Giant was. Look up here on the screen. This is Andre the Giant. This, this man right here, whose feet are about a foot and a half off the ground, that's one of the greatest bodybuilders of all time. His name's Arnold Schwarzenegger. You want to get an idea of how tall Andre the Giant is? That man here, anybody know who that is? That's Wilt Chamberlain. One of the greatest basketball players of all time, like seven foot four, seven foot five. And look at Andre the Giant compared to these two men. That's Arnold, the Arnold, Mr. Olympia. And look how much bigger Andre the Giant is. That's Will Chamberlain, like a center in the NBA for a very long time. Look how tall he is. I mean, he's unbelievable. You want to get a real sense of how big Andre the Giant was? Look at this picture. This is Andre the Giant holding a beer can. Now, I wanted to be absolutely, okay, two things. This is great. One, it's not just any beer can. It's a Molson Canadian, isn't it? <laughs> Some of you who knew that already, especially clappers back in the back, you, your sin is going to give birth to, no. <laughs> God bless him for, for not having a Coors Light, right? It's a Molson. Very critical. Write that down. Andre the Giant likes Molson. No, okay, so this is the deal. I Googled this, and you know Snopes.com? Have you ever seen Snopes? It will tell you whether or not something is like real or fake. Because you see those fake stories all the time online. You're like, I think that's fake on Facebook. Most of it is. I think it's called fake book anyway. So most of it is. But Snopes will tell you, is that a rumor or is that really true? Snopes says, this is really true. This is really his hand. Holding a normal-sized beer can. Oh, my gosh. That's a big dude. Here's the deal. Andre the Giant, like I said, was born Andre Rusimov, and, and, and he was not born like in this enormous size. He wasn't born like three feet tall and 60 pounds. Like that, it was, he was just a normal-sized baby. But that boy grew, didn't he? And what if when he was seven foot five, 520 pounds, his mother continued to treat him like a newborn? You can wear overalls in public. You know, I'll rock you carry you around, what, what would have happened if she would have picked him up and rocked him? What would have happened to her? She'd been crushed and died. But when he's a baby, it's fine. You can deal with that. You can manage that. See, it's the same thing with desire, giving birth to sin, and sin giving birth to death. There is a day where that desire is very, very small, and a lot of times it's not even an illegitimate desire. It's a legitimate need for human connection. It's a legitimate need for material things to help feed your family. It's a legitimate need for, for a, a guilt-free life before God. Those are legitimate things, but if you water them and give them sunlight and allow them to grow outside of or out from underneath of the kingdom of Christ, those things will become so unbelievably big that they will crush you and cause you to do things that you never, ever, ever dreamed you would do. So here's my question. What's driving you? Maybe you're at that point today where that thing that's driving you is seven foot five, 520 pounds. And you're not sure you'll ever be able to come out from underneath it. Maybe that thing that's driving you today is just a little bitty desire. It's a little bitty thought. Just like Judas way back. Just like Peter way back. Just like the Pharisees way back. And you need to bring it under the authority of Christ. And I want to tell you how. And then we're going to be done. So, so here's the deal. If our desire is to be more and more like God, 
and not in the like God, like I'm gonna get my own planet one day, that, not that weird stuff. Like I wanna model my life after Jesus and the way he walked and the way he talked and the values that God exhibits in the scripture. I wanna model my life after that, okay? Then what is driving me should be the same thing that's driving God, right? Does that make sense? That's, that's not complicated, right? So if I ask the question, what's driving me? What should it be? It should be the very same thing that's driving God because I'm trying to live like he lived and walk like he walked and adopt his values. So here's my question. When it comes to the crucifixion of Jesus, what's driving God? Why did he do it? Why did he allow it? Why did he ordain it? Why did he open doors? Why didn't he intervene? Why? What is driving him? What is that thing for him that's moving him down the path? And once again, later on in his life, John will write letters to the church, and he helps us understand what was driving God that day 1,986 years ago. He says, watch this. John writes this. He says, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Okay, we're gonna unpack this, okay, bit by bit. Everybody say this word with me, propitiation. Okay, I love $3 theological terms. I love them, and this is one of them, propitiation. Say it one more time. It's a fun one, right? It's a fun one. And it's a little bit complicated, and a lot of folks don't know what it means, and that's fine. We're going to define it. Simple definition of propitiation is this. It's an action meant to regain someone's favor, favor or make up for something you did wrong. Propitiation. That's what it is. It's an action meant to regain someone's favor or make up for something that you did wrong. So let me just give you a quick illustration. Last night... All day, throughout the day, Kaya was uh, just a little bit challenging, right? And my kid's got a lot of energy. She's got a lot of spunk. So when I say a little bit challenging, what I mean is like a dumpster fire. I mean, she was just tough from an obedience perspective. So it's time for her to go to bed. And we got our bedtime snack. And we got two books. And uh, she kind of disappears. And she knows I want her on the couch with me to read these books and bedtime snack and yogurt and all that stuff, right? And, And I say, Kaya, your bedtime snack's ready, babe. Like, we got books. I would like you to come join me on the couch. And this is, this is how I talk to her. So I, talk, I mean, really, that's how I talk to her. No answer. Kaya Bird. Dad's on the couch, babe. Love you, love you, love you. I need you to answer me, sweet girl. Because I'm starting to get a little hot. Because <laughs> it's been a long day. So would you please join me on the couch, sweet Kaya? No answer. Third time. I just go bonkers, bonkers. Third time, same thing, silence for three seconds. Then I hear. Some of you might think that's the sound of my own tears. It, it probably was it's, to some extent, but it was Kaya crying. She comes downstairs, comes down and sits on the couch beside me. This is not an exaggeration. She's weeping. There's four and a half year old tears coming out of her face like this. Daddy, you broke my heart. <laughs> and listen, here's the thing. Some of you that don't think people are born sinners... You don't have children. Because <laughs> this child is as manipulative as they come. <laughs> will not be manipulated. Yeah. So we read the darn books and we handed our bedtime snack. And then we're going to bed. And she said, Daddy, I'm serious. This is exactly what she said 30 minutes later. My heart is fixed. <laughs> she said, I love you, Daddy. I love you even though you yelled at me. I... <laughs> I love you even though you broke my heart. (laughs) Manipulative little rat. Say that right now. (laughs) So let's take our definition. We're just going to pop it right back into the verse. Ready? In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to make up for what we did wrong. 
It's a little more simple than propitiation, isn't it? We couldn't do it. We couldn't have made up for it. We had our own debt to pay, so God sent his son Jesus to pay the debt you owed and I owed. So what's driving him? Because Acts chapter 3, verse 23 says that Jesus was delivered up according to the very definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Let that one sink in. From eternity past, he had this plan that he would send his son as a propitiation to make up for what we did wrong. So what's driving him? Is it greed? Is it jealousy? Is it anger? Is it this desire, this emotion that he hasn't kept into check? That he loved us. See, love drives God. So listen, if, if, if the question is, what should be driving me? That's the question. And I've just answered, what is driving God? Love drives God. That's who has the steering wheel of his decisions. His love for you, his love for me. So if love drives God, then here's the question. What should be driving me? What drives you? What is it? John tells us, once again, this is what should be driving you. Now watch this very, very closely because we get this backwards, Christians, all the time. We get this backwards all the time. Watch. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. See, we say this all the time, right? Like, Luke, why are you a pastor? Like, well, I just, I really love God and I really want to do what he would have me do. Why is it that you uh, behave a certain way in your marriage or in your finances or whatever? What, what is it? Well, I just really love God. I really love God. I was meeting with Dave Lewis Sr. Do you guys know Dave Lewis Sr.? He used to be the transitional pastor before me. Very, very smart man, like seven years old, very, very spiritual man. Unbelievable. I said, I just, I love God so much. That's my driver. He said, wrong. Biblically speaking, wrong. I said, well, Dave, I've been to seminary. <laughs> Let's not get into this argument. He said, Luke, according to what John just told us, it's not that we've loved God. In other words, the best driver is not my love for God. The best thing to turn over my decision making, the best thing to take the wheel of my life is not my love for God because I love him so much I've done these things. And we tell ourselves that internally all the time. It's about my love for God. It's about my love for God. It's about my love for God. Christians, can I clue you in on something that I'm learning in my personal life? It is not about my love for God. That's not the best driver. It's just knowing that God loves me. That's different, friends. That's drastically different. That's what John just told us. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son to make up for what we did wrong. That's very, very different. Because then, if that seed of fear gets planted like it did for Peter, Instead of thinking, well, I love God, I love God, I'm going to overcome this fear because I love God. What I think now is, I don't have to be afraid because John just told me that perfect love drives out fear, right? So I can rest in the love of God and his love can drive out that fear. In the case of Judas, if I think maybe I'm short on something, maybe I don't have what I need to eat, instead of thinking, I love God, I love God, I think, no, 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 God loves me. And he said, look at the lilies of the field, how they're clothed in all their splendor. Don't you think your heavenly father, what, loves you more than he loves them? He's such a perfect father with perfect love. If you ask him for bread, is he going to give you a stone? If you ask him for a fish, is he going to give you a poisonous snake? What are you even thinking? It's because of God's extraordinary love for you that you don't have to worry and amass wealth and collect things, to be honest with you, are just a little more expensive than that toy they showed those kids a commercial for. They're not any different. They're all going to get eaten up by rust and moth anyway. But if I rest in the love of God, I can say that God has lavished his grace and love upon me and I can entrust myself to him because he's a loving heavenly father. Therefore, I don't have to be greedy and acquire, but I can be generous and give. That's different. For the Pharisees that had a guilt problem that became the driver of their life and the driver of their life being their guilt drove them to put nails through his hands. 
How do you live a guilt-free life? By ticking all the boxes that God wants you to tick? No. You live a guilt-free life by coming before a loving God and going, I know you love me so much that you sent your son to be a propitiation for me. So it's not about my love for God anymore. It's about God's love for me. And that radically changes the way you live and think and move and breathe. My prayer for you, brethren in Christ, friends, old and new, if you've been here 50 years, if you've been here 50 minutes, is that you would rest in God's extraordinary and extravagant love for you. That you wouldn't fool yourself into believing that it's about your love for him. I'm glad you love him. That's a good thing. But please let the driver of your life be God's extraordinary, never giving up, never settling, never resting, unrelenting, unconditional love for you. Pray with me. God, thank you for your word and the way that it comes alive to us as we explore it together. God, there are some of us in the room that have turned the keys of our life over to something that's seven foot five, 520 pounds, and it feels overwhelming. God, would you remind us that your love is greater than that? For some of us, we think that that little desire, that little thing, that little seed is never gonna grow to be big enough to impact us at all. God, would you remind us that even now it's time to bring that under your authority? God, today, from just my own heart and my personal perspective, I am so overwhelmed and thrilled and glad and dumbfounded by your unbelievable love for me. God, would you teach me more and more to be a person that lives from that space, knowing that you love me and just being okay, resting in that. In the name of Christ, the people of God together said,